0: The only reason the church exists, the only reason you and I are still breathing is to fulfill the Great Commission, to take the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. If we didn't have a job description to do while we're still here, why would God leave us? Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, the Gospel of Mark is an action-packed, it's almost a news brief, it's also uh, kind of like CNN short news clips, and it records what Jesus did. This is Peter's Gospel, really recorded by Mark the scribe, and it's very action-packed, it portrays Jesus as God's servant, and it's always showing Jesus doing something. He's busy working, fulfilling his earthly mission. His mission, of course, was to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. What's interesting about Jesus is, unlike us, he never lost sight of what he was on the planet to do. He never got distracted. It's very easy for us to get distracted in this culture. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Jesus knew he only had three years, three years to complete his discipleship and healing ministry before his date with the cross. And Rob is going to show you just a quick slide of Israel. Jesus spent three years in ministry. The first year was in southern Israel in the region of Judea. That's Jerusalem and Hebron and things of that nature. So he spent most of the first year there, although he did travel up north a bit. As he ministered, he got increasing opposition from the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem. So he relocated his ministry north. Uh, to the Galilee region. That's the northern region of Israel, and the central part of that is the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is going to spend the next 12 to 18 months around the Sea of Galilee using the fishing village of Capernaum as his ministry headquarters. That was a very strategic site because it was located on two trade routes, the Via Maris, which ran from the uh, sea inland, and then the King's Highway. Both of these connected Damascus uh, and Egypt. And so there was an enormous number of caravans that would come literally through from Egypt to Damascus and they would stop in, in uh, the, C- the Sea of Galilee at the fishing village of Capernaum. So Jesus strategically located his ministry there. Obviously the word of his healing and his ministry and the gospel would be carried from nation to nation by these caravans. So the first three chapters of Mark we've seen that Jesus is busy doing miracles, he's teaching, and he attracts huge crowds. Literally thousands of people mob him. It's literally for them the greatest show on earth because he does many, many, many miracles. Literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of healings are taking place. He throws out demons, he heals the sick, and it's really a marvelous ministry. Jesus didn't come to earth to attract crowds. That's not why he showed up. He came to earth to make peace between holy God and sinful people. He was a reconciliation. And when the crowds follow him, he just didn't heal them. He used the opportunity to teach them about why he came and what his purpose was and really about the kingdom of heaven. Now, as Jesus teaches and heals, people's attitudes toward him, interestingly, are becoming increasingly hostile. And the opposition toward his ministry and his person is growing stronger. What is disheartening, and yet it's very, very evident, there's lots of evidence that Jesus is Messiah. When you heal people dramatically and throw out demons, it's pretty clear that you have supernatural power. But the religious leaders have rejected him and they're plotting to kill him because he is really a major threat to their religious rule over the people. They were using the uh, religious system of the day to ally with Rome and oppress the common citizen, and Jesus obviously was a threat to that. So these religious leaders ultimately accused Jesus of doing these miracles by the power of Satan. They say, you're possessed with Satan, and that's how you're able to cast out Satan. What's intriguing, we're going to find out today, is at that moment, Jesus immediately changes his teaching style and his teaching method. Before then, Jesus had always spoken plain truth. Here's who I am. Repent. Be baptized. The kingdom of heaven is coming. From this moment on, Jesus only teaches the crowd using parables. So every time he speaks to a crowd, he speaks in parables. Parables are illustrations that really uh, reflect truth by means of comparisons. Para means come alongside, right? Like a paramedic. Is someone who comes alongside a, a, a medical doctor. A paradox is two MDs. A pair that's 20 cents, you know, that thing. So para, yeah, some of you are a little slow. A little more coffee will help. So para means to come alongside. And the word balo, para, parable, balo means to throw or to cast. So a parable is a story that comes alongside the truth. And it helps us understand the meaning of the truth. Parables are literally truth in picture form. And Jesus told a lot of parables. In a parable, the truth is cast alongside or thrown alongside a scene from everyday life. A common, ordinary scene from everyday life. And everyday life helps illustrate and illuminate the truth that's being taught. Jesus would often say, The kingdom of heaven is like... And he would give you a a scene from everyday life, and the the average person would go, oh, okay, I get it now, because it's like something I already know. In any parable, there's a lot of details, but there's usually only one central lesson per parable, and today we're going to look at the first of all the parables and the progenitor for all the parables. Warren Rearsby writes, a parable begins innocently, as a picture that arrests our attention, arouses our interest. But as we study this picture, it becomes a mirror, and we suddenly see ourselves in the parable. If we continue to look by faith at the parable, the mirror becomes a window through which we see God and His truth, and how we respond to that truth will determine what further truth God will teach us. So let's pick up the narrative in Mark 4, if you look at verse 1. Jesus began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying them, saying to them in his teaching, and I'll pick up the parable in verse 3 in just a second. So this parable is going to be the foundational parable It's the parable of the soils. Now we say it's the parable of the sower and the seed. It's really not about the sower and the seed at all. It's about the parables. It's a parable of the soils, and it's mentioned as the first parable in all three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this parable first. Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8 mention it first because it's the key to understanding every other parable that Jesus gave. Now, this crowd is so large that he can't stay on the land and teach. So he gets into a fishing boat and they push the fishing boat offshore. So Jesus is in the boat and the crowd is on the land and he's teaching them from the boat. In that era, rabbis always taught sitting down and obviously you're in a rocking boat. So Jesus sat down in this fishing boat and was teaching the crowd when he was in the sea, in the lake, and they were on the land. Verse 3. And he says, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Now, Jesus is going to use a very common agricultural scene. All the parables talk about everyday life, something that everybody has in common. This was a very agrarian culture. Everybody generally farmed or fished. And so this was a very common scene. Everybody knew what he was talking about. The sower is a farmer and a farmer's planting his unplowed field with seed. And a farmer generally, when they did that, they carried the large bag of seed on the bank of a donkey and then took the donkey and the seed out in the field. And then they had a leather bag that they would fill with wheat or barley seed and they would scatter this seed. They would literally reach into the bag and broadcast the seed and throw it, right? As they walked through the field. I don't know what you're looking at, but okay, that's pretty good. (laughs) So generally it was wheat or barley seed uh, that they would scatter while they walking in the field. And in that era, you didn't plow the field first and then plant the seed. You scattered the seed and then you plowed or hoed it under. And so you actually buried the seed when you plowed. So you planted first and then you plowed by means of an animal uh, and probably a wooden plow for the most part. And Jesus said, by the way, when this farmer is throwing seed, some of it's going to land by the road, the roadside. This was either a road near the edge of a field, or it could have been a walking path that went through a field. And most of the walking paths were about three feet wide, three, four feet wide. And at any rate, this road that he's talking about, this roadside was hard packed like concrete because people just walked over it. It was a dirt road, but it was Trafficked a lot, constant foot traffic, people and animals. And so this, this hard soil on the road was like concrete because it was walked on all the time. And the seeds would land on the road. So when you broadcast seeds, some of the seeds land on this hard-packed road and they couldn't sprout because it was hard and it was not moist. And the seeds were very visible. And very, very often during that era, and today even, flocks of birds follow the farmer. And they're looking for what? Free food. So they would literally eat the seeds right off the roadway. They were very visible and they couldn't sprout, so the seed would never sprout and never grow. Verse 5. Other seed fell on the rocky soil where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Now, in Palestine, if any of you have been to Israel, you know that it's really disguised. It's really a gravel mine, but it's just disguised as land. There are rocks everywhere. It is an incredibly rocky country. It's a miracle of God that they can farm it, but they really farm it. But many, many times you would have a layer of rock, usually limestone, and that layer of rock would be a few inches underneath the soil. So you'd have a very thin layer of soil on top of a layer of rock. And when you got that shallow soil and you got the sun that warmed the soil on the rock underneath and you scattered seed on it, man, it would germinate really quickly. So it would come up really, really fast. Unfortunately, these rock layers were too deep for their plows to reach, but they were too shallow for the plant to grow past it and get to the water source. So you had shallow soil, rock layer underneath, the water was below the rock layer. The plant couldn't get to the water. Plant would, Roots would go down, hit the rock layer, and they couldn't get to the water at that point. So it would sprout rapidly, but when the sun came up and the heat came in the summertime, the plant could not reach water and it would die, right? Pretty reliable. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. So this seed sprouted, but it had to compete. It had to compete with weeds and thorns. Thorns, were they bore thistles. So you hear the word thistle, that's the flower of a thorn plant. And these were tough, woody plants and uh, grew quickly. So many, many times, thorn seeds and thorn roots were buried underground. So you could look at the soil and say, my gosh, that soil looks like it's ready to plant, looks good. Underneath the soil are weeds. How many of you have weeds in your yard? You know, did you plant them? How is it that weeds are always more productive, grow faster, are tougher than what you want to grow? The stuff you want to grow, you have to baby along, Weeds just take care of themselves, right? So, you plant the seed and the thorns and the thorn roots are buried underground and they sprout at the same time, the wheat or the barley seed does, and they grow quickly. And of course, these weeds then capture all the moisture, capture all the soil nutrients that the wheat needs, that the plant needs, and they also grow quicker than the wheat and they block the sunlight. And so the plant, the wheat, or the barley, uh, can't survive because it's choked out because the the space, the light, the water, the nutrition has been absorbed by the, uh, the the weed seeds, the the thistles and the thorns, and they choke the plant to death. Verse four, verse eight rather. Other seeds fell into good soil. So now he's giving you four soils, and these this fourth soil was good soil, and the plant grew and increased, and the plant yielded a crop and produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. So this last soil is fertile soil. It's prepared soil. It's ready to receive the seed. What we don't understand is crop production. In that era, the average harvested crop to planted seed ratio was about 7.5 or 8 to 1. So if you planted one wheat seed, one wheat grain, you got 8 back. Plant one, get eight. Eight to one was about average. Now, Ron farms, and Ron has farmed for 40 years. Ron, I have no idea what it is today. But 10 to one in that era was a crazy abundant crop. If you planted one wheat seed and you got 10 back, that was a really super fertile soil, great abundant crop. And Jesus is saying, this soil is so good, it produces 30 to one 60 to 1 and 100 to 1. Plant one grain of wheat to get 100 grains back. And that was unbelievable. It was literally supernatural. That was unheard of. You never, ever, ever would get a crop. as a crop beyond imagination. So Jesus is in the boat and he's telling this common parable. And they're going, yeah, we understand that. There's these various kinds of soils. And then he says in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which says, you think you get it, but you don't get it. It requires another level of understanding. I just told you the earthly story. There's a heavenly meaning about the kingdom of God in this story that requires discernment for you to understand the meaning of the parable. Not everyone who hears the parable will understand it. Not everyone who understands the parable will obey it. So Jesus is talking about listening with an intent to obey, listening with with an intent to live in accordance with what is heard. This parable is not for everyone to understand. By design, this parable is not told so that everyone can understand it, but only the followers of Jesus, verse 10. As soon as Jesus was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he was saying to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Here's the principle. God conceals truth from those who reject His Son and reveals truth to those who accept His Son or receive His Son. God conceals truth from those who reject His Son and reveals truth to those who receive His Son. So the crowds have gone away and Jesus is now asked by His disciples, What's this parable mean? We know there's a spiritual meaning behind it. We get the story, but what's the meaning behind the story? And by the way, why have you shifted your teaching methodology? Why are you just using parables and only parables now? So Jesus said, well, you're my followers, and you are privileged to understand God's mystery. A mystery in the Old Testament, by the way, was something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. So what was hidden, Jesus is now going to reveal. The parable hid truth from the crowds. Jesus is now going to explain the meaning of that parable and reveal the mystery to his followers. And Jesus makes a distinction between those who are inside and those who are outside, right? Those on the inside were his disciples who accepted him. Those on the outside were those who rejected him such as the scribes and Pharisees. Then Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 10 which he just set up here so that while seeing they may see and not perceive and while hearing they may hear and not understand otherwise they may return and be forgiven. So he quotes that and he says Israel's spiritual blindness and deafness is a judgment from God for their willful rejection of Jesus their Messiah. So The scribes and Pharisees had led the nation into rejecting their Messiah despite the fact that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in front of their eyes. Despite the hundreds of miracles witnessed by thousands of people. So this was a willful rebellion led by the scribes and Pharisees against Jesus the Messiah despite overwhelming evidence. Have you ever met somebody who said, Don't destroy me with the facts I already made up my mind. You know people like that. It doesn't matter what the evidence shows, they've already made up their mind. Well, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, despite the evidence, despite the fact that they knew the scriptures, top to bottom, said that Jesus' miracles came from Satan, and they had overwhelmingly rejected him, and their fixed and persistent rejection of Jesus Christ God judged by concealing further truth from them. The day of forgiveness had passed for them. Since they would not believe, Jesus said, I'm going to fix it so you cannot believe. That's an incredibly sobering thing because what is essence, God is saying, is you chose to reject my son. I'm going to honor your decision to reject my son and I will lock in your choice and there will be no more opportunity to change your mind. See, we all think that I can reject Christ at any point and I can choose to come back anytime I want and he will pick me up where I left off. Be very careful with thinking you can tell God what to do. And for you and I as Christians, we're not talking about salvation. That's been settled. But if Jesus Christ is talking to you and the Holy Spirit is talking to you about doing something, you have an opportunity to obey or disobey. And don't think you can disobey God and come back and say, Lord, I'll have this conversation with you in a year and I'll obey you then. The opportunity may be gone and they may be gone forever. You can't tell God... No, come back when I'm ready, and then we'll have a conversation. God is sovereign. And he told them, you who know better, you spiritual leaders, are leading these people astray into rejecting me, and you know I'm the Messiah because I fulfilled every biblical mandate and the, and the, the, the biblical prophecies, and I've done hundreds of miracles in front of thousands of people, and you've seen them, and you've chosen to reject me, and God says, your will be done. I'm now going to speak in parables, and I'm going to conceal the truth from you. So Jesus is teaching the crowds in public, but later in private, he takes his own disciples and he says, here's what these parables mean. And he uses this pattern throughout the rest of his ministry. All the parables are there for a reason. He's now going to explain the meaning of this parable to his disciples, and it's also for us. Now this parable is very foundational. Because this parable gives us God's instructions about our primary job on planet Earth. The only reason the church exists, the only reason you and I are still breathing, is to fulfill a great commission. Is to fulfill a great commission to take the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. If we didn't have a job description to do while we're still here, why would God leave us? Why would not we just take us to heaven? You receive me, you're out of here. All right? Come home. Now, there will come a day when he says, your work is done, it's time to come home. But if you're still breathing, you have a job description. Matthew 28 tells us, take the gospel to the nations, make disciples of the nations. God loves lost people. And he has tasked us with the privilege of telling them about have a, have a relationship with him through his son Jesus. So, this parable is given to educate us and to inform us as to how we are to obey the Great Commission. So, let's begin the explanation that Jesus gave, verse 14. The sower sows the word. Now, the sower is any servant of God who shares God's word with others. If you are sharing the gospel with people, you're the sower. Now, are you called to be the sower? Of course. Jesus doesn't, by the way, give a job description of the sower. He doesn't say, well, the sower needs to be brilliant and savvy and clever and culturally aware and a really great speaker and have a PhD or a THD or a whatever it is. He says, just a sower. And every single believer, every follower of Jesus is called to be a sower you know what you do as a sower? You tell people about Jesus. It's pretty simple. You tell people about Jesus, right? Sower, scatter the seed. The seed is what? The seed is the gospel. The seed is God's word. The seed is the good news that sinful people can be reconciled to holy God because as Jesus paid for our sins by dying on the cross and being resurrected three days later, right? That's the gospel. It's pretty simple, Right? It's intriguing that the gospel is like seed in that it has the power to produce life. When you put a seed in the ground, have you ever thought to yourself, wow, that's amazing. That whole plant is hidden in that seed. And you plant that seed which looks dead and it life comes out of that and we have new life as a result of that seed. Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1. Now, there are some who believe that we really need to educate the sower or modify the seed. You know, if only we had the sower with better technique. If we had a sower that was more culturally relevant. If we had a sower that wore, you know, black shirts and uh, holes in their knees. If we had a sower that really behaved more like the audience. Then, What? You would have a bigger audience and you'd have a bigger harvest. So we need to tweak the sower. Does this parable say anything about the sower? There's also people who believe you know, the gospel seed is, is maybe it was adequate back then, but we really need to genetically modify the gospel seed. I mean, it needs to be improved. All this talk about sin and salvation and you need a savior. Why don't you just talk about how Jesus will help you get what you want out of life? If you only did that, you would attract a bigger crowd and you'd have what? Bigger harvest. That's not what Jesus said. The issue in this parable is not the sower, it's not the seed. It's all about the soils. The gospel seed cannot be improved upon. And you and I, as followers of Jesus have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to scatter the seed and tell people about Jesus, yes? So the issue in productivity is the condition of the soils. The size of the crop has nothing to do with the sower or the seed. It's the condition of the soils. So in this parable, the soil represents the human heart. The soil represents the human heart. This parable is telling us, When you share the gospel with people, you're going to have one of four responses. One of four responses to the gospel. And when you share the gospel and they hear it from you, they're going to respond one of four ways. Only one of four ways. And three of them are negative. And one of them is positive beyond belief. So the three first soils, the first three soils we're going to talk about, they all have some response to the gospel, but they all have one thing in common. They don't bear any fruit. The first three soils, no fruit. The fourth soil leads, yields a fruit that is so abundant, it's, it's almost supernatural. The first three soils produce no crop because each soil has an enemy that prevents the crop from growing. Warren Rusby writes, each of the first three fruitless hearts is influenced by different enemies. The first one is the hard heart. The devil snatches away the seed. The second one is the shallow heart. The flesh contradicts religious feelings. And the third one is the crowded heart. The things of the world smother the growth and prevent a harvest. These are the three great enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Jesus is now going to identify four different responses to the gospel message. Verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road when the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that has been sown in them. Here's the principle. A person with a closed mind immediately rejects and then forgets God's word. A person with a closed mind immediately rejects and then forgets God's word. This is a person with a hard heart and a closed mind, and they reject the gospel immediately and out of hand because their minds are blinded by Satan. They are hardened and indifferent to the gospel. The gospel bounces off their heart like a rubber ball dropped on a sidewalk. The gospel never penetrates, never sprouts, makes no impact on their life. Their heart is calloused and hard with sin. It's full of self-sufficiency. This heart sings the song, I did it My way. I don't know if this heart loves their sin, but many people that don't want to hear the gospel message, you know why they don't want to hear it? They love their sin. And they don't want to give their sin up. And they know that if they receive Christ, they're going to have to get rid of their sin, and they love their sin too much to do that. Many people who have a hard heart toward the gospel, they they say, Brad... My life is fine. I'm doing good. I don't need Jesus. My marriage is okay. My job is okay. My kids are okay. What do I need Jesus for? Because you're going to die just like the rest of us and you're going to stand before God. This life is short. Think about eternity. Prepare for the inevitable, right? So people that have a hard heart or a closed mind, they immediately desist the gospel. It's foolish, it's unnecessary. They are the fool in Proverbs. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And you know something? That belief only lasts as long as you are processing oxygen on this planet. Because the day you leave this planet, you will find out there is a God. And instead of Him being your Savior, He will be your judge. So Satan steals the truth from these people before it makes an impact on their life. And he does it lots of ways. Satan diverts their attention. Satan uh, encourages their pride so they'll forget what they hear. So this kind of hardened soil, this closed mindedness toward the Gospel is represented by the scribes and Pharisees. They understood Jesus, they understood His message, they saw His miracles, but they repeatedly rejected Him despite all the evidence. The Gospel never made an impact on them. You know, when you share the Gospel with people today, some of the ones you talk to are, they're going to immediately reject it. They're going to immediately blow it off, "Ah, that doesn't apply to me, doesn't matter. They're going to reject it, and you think they're rejecting you. They're not rejecting you. You're the messenger. They're rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised that some people will reject the gospel. Jesus already told you in advance that some people will give the gospel a hearing. So instead of being discouraged, what should you and I do? Keep sowing. Aren't you amazed the sower kept Sowing hard soil, weedy soil, rocky soil, good soil. The sower kept sowing. Didn't go chasing the birds away, just kept sowing. That's our job. Keep telling people about Jesus. Verse 16. Soil number two. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So soil one is a closed mind. The person in soil two is a casual mind. A person with a casual mind makes an emotional commitment to God's word, but quickly falls away when hardships come. A person with a casual mind makes an emotional commitment to God's word, but quickly falls away when hardships come. Some people that follow Christ, follow him, they usually make an immediate decision, and many times those immediate decisions are hasty, and many times they're emotional. They make a decision for Christ, they haven't thought about it, they haven't counted the cost, they haven't given it time. It says that they receive the word with joy. They hear the gospel and they go, yes, that's for me. But they don't count the cost of following Jesus. Maybe they just got caught up in an emotional moment. Maybe they just impulsively decided to follow Jesus. Many times this shallow commitment to Jesus is really self-centered. And you know people like this. I'll follow Jesus as long as He gives me what I want. I'll follow Jesus as long as He makes my life better, fixes my family, heals my health, gives me that raise, promotes my career. So let's make a deal, Jesus. I'll follow you if you give me what I want. I follow Jesus for what I can get out of it. And unfortunately... The church often presents the gospel that way. You should follow Jesus because it will do all this wonderful things for you. In this life, He'll make your life better. You'll be your best self, right? This is the health and wealth gospel. This is the prosperity gospel. God exists to serve me because it really is all about me. right? I'm the center, not Jesus. The gospel seed in this life does not root itself into their lives because their commitment is shallow, just like that seed we talked about covering a very thin layer of soil. So this second kind of response to the gospel is an immediate positive response, but it's temporary because it's based many, many times on emotion and self-interest. And as soon as there's hardship, as soon as there's persecution, as soon as there is a cost for following Christ, as soon as they're not getting what they want out of the deal, they what? They're out of here. I am out of here. Some people get married like that. I get married as long as it's a good deal for me, and when it's not, I'm out of here. Well, people approach the Lord that way too. They don't follow Him because He's Lord, they follow Him because He's their meal ticket. And that's exactly what the crowds were doing. They were not committed to Jesus. They were following Jesus based on what Jesus could do for them. Right? These many, many thousands of people that followed him. Heal the sick. Who wouldn't want to go get healed? Feed my belly. Of course, you know, he fed the 5,000, all this other stuff. It's amazing. Luke 8 says they believe for a while. This chapter, Mark 4, says this kind of person is committed, but their commitment is conditional. You know, God, you do for me what I want you to do, and I'll follow you. But if you don't do it my way, I'm done. Mark says they're temporary. Their profession of faith is not genuine. It's fake. And the crowds that followed Jesus, they wanted a miracle worker. They wanted someone who would feed their bellies and heal their bodies. They wanted a meal ticket more than a Messiah. Really, what they wanted is a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and set them free. So they thought following Jesus was going to make their life problem free. Have you ever believed that? You ever believed that if you followed Jesus, He would make your life trouble free? I found when I followed Jesus, my life got more complicated, it got harder. It got better, but it got harder. By the way, when someone says my life is good, it doesn't mean it's problem-free. If your life is problem-free, you are in the cemetery. You just don't know it yet. If you're breathing, you have problems. You have troubles. Those are blessings from the Lord because they draw you close to Him. So... The point for you and I is, when you share the gospel with people, don't lie to them and tell them that Jesus is going to fix everything by this weekend. It ain't going to happen. He's going to save their souls and change their lives and give them peace, and they have the God Himself living inside them so their life is eternally better. But it's not problem-free. They just have divine help with the problems. We must tell people the truth about the gospel, and don't appeal to people's emotions. Just tell them the straight-up gospel. You don't need to sprinkle sugar on the gospel seed. The gospel seed is perfect the way it is. Just tell people the truth. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Tell them what the Bible says. So, the closed mind doesn't give the gospel a moment's thought, just rejects it instantly. The casual mind gives the gospel only a moment's thought. And then when it doesn't turn out the way they want it and hardships come, they fall away. Next, we're going to look at the cluttered mind. The cluttered mind counts the cost of the gospel and then decides that the price is too high. Verse 16. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Here's the principle. A person with a cluttered mind pursues the priorities of this world which choke out God's word. A person with a cluttered mind pursues the priorities of this world which choke out God's word. Now, on the surface, this soil looks really good. It looks like it's ready to receive seeds and grow a crop. But underneath the surface, there are seeds of weeds, there are thorn roots. And Jesus says there's three kinds of thorns buried in this soil that will kill the gospel seed. Number one, the worries of this world. You all have enough to worry about? Is the world falling apart enough for you to worry about it? There's no limit to the number of things in this life you can worry about, Right? It's filled with things that consume our attention. Another translation calls this the cares of life. There's always cares of life. And if you spend all your time thinking about the cares of this life, you'll have no time for thinking about what lasts beyond this life, which is eternity. Number two, the deceitfulness of riches. Our culture as Pastor Roger so aptly said this morning, believes that there is no problem that cannot be fixed with more money. How many of you are making more money than you thought possible 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago? When you're in high school, you get paid minimum wage, you say, man, anything more than minimum wage, I'd be rich. <laughs> now you're making a lot more than minimum wage, and you're going, if I was making just an extra blank, blank, I'd be rich. And 10 years from now, you'll be saying the same thing. Money promises what it cannot deliver. Satisfaction of soul. Wealth routinely lures people away from eternal pursuits and blinds them to spiritual realities. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. By the way, don't say mammon. It's money. You cannot serve God and money. And many people routinely waste their lives, what? Chasing money. And you can't take it with you because there's no hearse that pulls a U-Haul. At least I've never seen one. Three, the desire for other things. This world is filled with bright, shiny trinkets that choke out God's word because they steal your time and attention. You know, the greatest thief in your life is the one you carry with you. Many of you sleep with it. Carolyn, you need to slap him, that was just (laughs) insulting. No, it's, it's, it's that other mistress, Rob, it's the one you're on all the time, you're looking at right now. It's called the phone, the smartphone. There's nothing wrong with a smartphone, it's a great tool. But if you're surfing the web five, six hours a day, and many people do, none of you would spend two to three hours a day surfing the web, look it up on Google, And that takes you into that web, and that takes you there, and that takes you there, and you wake up and you go, two and a half hours. I just gave up two and a half hours, and what do I have to show for it? Whoa, your attention is the greatest thing in the world. And it's being stolen every day. And we give it our time. And that's the one thing we don't have any more of. I'm not saying don't use the tool, I'm saying don't let the tool use you Make sure it's a tool The pack rat is an animal that loves to collect every and any bright shiny object. When you go into a midden, that's a pack rat den You will find cubic yards of bright shiny stuff They just love bright shiny stuff And when I go into your den that you call your house, I see lots of bright shiny stuff Nobody's smiling. (laughs) Our culture, we can spend oodles and oodles of time with the desires for things. This thorny soil is a picture of a double-minded person who wants the benefits of the gospel and wants to hang on to their old life of sin at the same time. They want it both ways. This thorny soil person wants to love Jesus and they love their sin at the same time. And Jesus says... No can do. No one can serve two masters. You cannot love Jesus unless you hate your sin. A truth of this, do we have sin? How do you deal with it? Some of us are going, Brad, you've got to work real hard, man. I've, I've, I've worn out more axes and shovels trying to get rid of the sin in my life. No, you let God rip out the thorn roots in your soil, in your heart. You surrender that to the Lord and you say, Lord, I can't deal with this sin, but you can. It's choking my life. Take it away. And when God rips up the thorn roots in your heart, it's going to hurt, but it's killing our spiritual productivity. A couple of biblical examples of cluttered minds. Remember the rich young ruler? He was rich, he was probably handsome, and he was young. What's not to like, right? Another one, Judas Iscariot. Both of them heard Jesus. Both of them counted the cost of discipleship and decided that they loved money more than the master. They loved the shekels more than the Savior. Both of their lives were filled with the desires for this world. So was Demas. And it killed the gospel seed. And you know what? Both of them rejected Christ, pursued the world, got what they wanted. The rich young ruler kept the money. Joe Judas got what? He got the money. But then he went out and committed suicide. Whoa, the money couldn't fix the guilt, huh? Beware a cluttered life. In an affluent culture, this is a huge issue for us. Interesting question. How much room does Jesus have in your heart? Is there room or is your life so cluttered with the cares of this world that Jesus just gets a small corner in the broom closet? And we don't ever want to open that one up. Verse 20, And those are the ones on whom the seed is sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Here's the principle. A person with a cultivated mind humbly hears and obeys God's word and therefore bears much fruit. A person with a cultivated mind humbly hears and obeys God's word and therefore bears much fruit. Now the word hear means hear with an intent to obey. When you listen to God's word, you don't listen to it as judge and go, well, I'll I'll think about that, I'll evaluate that. No, when God speaks, I'm going to obey it. Number two, you accept it. You understand it and obey it so that It transforms your life. And as a result of that, as an outgrowth of your faith and obedience, Jesus produces spiritual fruit in your life. And by the way, an ironclad evidence that a plant is alive is ongoing fruit. If a plant's producing fruit, you assume it's alive because there has to be life or there's no fruit. The word here is an ongoing action. Keep on hearing. Keep on accepting. Keep on bearing fruit. You know, the truth of it is, You and I can throw seed all day long. We can share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. Only God can plow soil. The productive soil is prepared soil. So when you read this parable and you go, wow, how come there's fertile soil? It's because God has been working in that heart to prepare it. Only God can cultivate the soil of the soul and prepare to respond to the gospel. And by the way, Cultivated soil is not natural. I'll tell you what's natural. Hard soil, shallow soil, rocky soil, thorny soil. That's natural. When someone's prepared to hear the gospel, God has been at work already in that life preparing that heart because only God can break up the hard soil of the heart. Only God can take out the rocks and pull out the weeds and prepare the soil for seed. God prepares people to hear the gospel, but they still have to choose, right? So we've got four soils that represent four responses, four different heart responses to the gospel. And the truth of it is, only one of these four is saved. The first three are not saved. You know how we know that? The fourth one is the only one that produces fruit. The first three are barren, there's no crop. Jesus said, You will know them by your fruits. And when you read this parable, you get depressed and you get more depressed and more depressed because you go, man, three out of the four produce no fruit? Yep. But the fourth one produces a crop that's supernatural. 30, 60, 100 fold, that is the power of God. So we look at human effort and we go, there's no way we can reach the world with the gospel. Yeah, and yourself, you can't. But fortunately, God is not depending on your power. He's just saying, you obey me and I'll provide the power. I'll prepare the hearts. You just do what I tell you to do. Because I, when I change people's lives, I make them spiritually productive. But they're spiritually productive in varying degrees. Not everyone's equally fruitful, right? Some 30, some 60, some 100. They're all supernatural. But some produce more than others. And that's God's job. God's job is to bring the harvest in. God's job is to bring the fruit. It's our job to plant the seed, water the seed, pull the weeds, pray for the harvest. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. You know what that means? Before you share the gospel with people, Before you open your mouth and talk to them, you ought to be on your face talking to God first. Because if He doesn't prepare the soil of the heart, there's no hope that they're going to respond. No one responds to the gospel unless the Holy Spirit draws them. We know that. Which means we need to cry out that God will open their heart and prepare their heart to respond to the fruit of the gospel and so they will become productive. Now, those of us in this room who already follow Jesus couple of questions. Do we have a hard heart toward God? Is there an area of our life where God's talking to us about and we don't want to hear it? And He says, um, Don't make me get a D9 cat with a ripper and break up the soil. It's going to be very painful. Do we have a casual attitude toward the Gospel? Is our prayer life really self-centered not God-centered? Do we spend our prayer life asking God, me, 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 as opposed to God, I want you to be glorified. I want you to be exalted. I want you to receive the praise at whatever price tag it costs me. Are we so busy chasing the stuff of this life that there isn't room for Jesus? Are we so preoccupied with the cares of this life? By the way, All it takes is a good cancer diagnosis that the doctor says we can't do anything about. And all of a sudden we get eternal perspective on all the cares of this life and all the stuff of this world. You don't have to have a cancer diagnosis to have the right perspective. Ask God to open your eyes to what's really eternally significant. And lastly, many want to be spiritually productive. Are we willing to let God cultivate the soil of our hearts today so that we can become more spiritually productive. What does God want to add into your heart, into your life? And what does he want to take away to make sure the soil is productive and so the truth will be planted and fruit will come out of it? Let's summarize and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praises. Number one. Principle number one, God conceals truth from those who reject His Son and reveals truth to those who accept His Son. You and I know truth because the Holy Spirit reveals to us because we follow Him. Number two, a person with a closed mind immediately rejects and then forgets God's Word. A person with a casual mind makes an emotional commitment to God's Word but quickly falls away when hardships come. A person with a cluttered mind pursues the priorities of this world which choke out God's word. Lastly, a person with a cultivated mind humbly hears and obeys God's word and therefore bears much fruit. Each of us, every day, our heart is going to reflect some of these, one of these, many of these. Ask God and be willing to be cultivated. Now that you know, do. I love you. Next week, read ahead. MANA meets at
1: Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9 30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.